Good old-fashioned December 2023 news episode with Sean and Andy. That song means we're in the same room and we're using the mixer. It really does. I'm thinking about getting another one of these. Is that decadent? If we we probably another, should, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to get one for my place. We're going to be a two-roadcaster podcast. We also have a live studio audience. Oh, thanks, everybody. Welcome to Rowan and McLaughlin's Laughing. What was that show? Oh, God, these headphones sound fucking terrible. Yeah, It yeah. sounds worse in my ears than it even uh, usually is for the listeners. We're still building our new Ridgewood studio. <laughs> We're using all this uh, Polish ex-Soviet expat <laughs> technology. It's funny because the uh, the theme song stuff reminds me of our early days when we were surrounded by like $100,000 worth of Sam Cedar stuff. Oh, yeah. The glory days, man. It made we got to worm our way back in there somehow. I got to like take an internship there so I can use that studio again. I feel like Sam Cedar, I don't know, if I really press my luck, I bet he could get us in because... Uh, you know, I think that I, I got some cred over there still. Oh, yeah? The majority Report world. That's yeah. true. Yeah, Matt Leck is still uh, a homie. Matt Leck is still a homie. Um, who else is there? Best friend of the show, Emma Vinland. Just kidding. I I've never interacted her. with her. I'm sure she's... I love I love her uh, on sports. She seems I, like I got to worm my way onto that sports show. That's for sure. Wait, wait, wait. They have a sports show now? ESVN. She talks about sports, and she... She's awesome. She's a very good sports commentator. Oh, that's cool. You're uh, very much in uh, the sports world right now because you're writing a book about sports. I am. I'm writing a book about the history of New York baseball from a Marxist perspective out on Astro Press in 2026. Dude, are we allowed to fucking, <laughs> are we allowed to like, um, to hype each other up on this podcast? Because we're, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to set expectations too high, but this book you have coming out in a couple of years is going to be fucking fire. We ha- I want to hype it up, but we can't hype it up too soon because, like I said, 2026, and who yeah. knows? You know, Who knows what? If, baseball might not yeah. exist anymore. The The pitch clock thing. Is I think gonna... baseball will exist, but books won't. Oh, interesting. So, <laughs> yeah. It's an equal likelihood that... One of those things exists, but not the other. But real collapse. You know, if we're just talking about what we're doing in our lives, I am uh, sitting in a co-working space writing about baseball for six hours a day, every day, and I love it. That's great, man. Doesn't get much better than that. Beats working for a living. But right? don't worry, I will not bore you about baseball. I will save that for maybe once a year. I'll have a baseball. No, episode. you should like periodically when you get into the archives and when you right. do interviews, you should like. Bring the good tidbits out and tease them a little bit because what we want to do in true media person fashion, because as everybody knows, you and me are like serious, dedicated media people, is you need to like use one base to build the yeah, other. Yeah. And then we're going to become as big as Majority Report. And then we're going to get two roadscasters and maybe some <laughs> fucking earphones that aren't like, what are the, these are from like 2004. Those are from an airplane, actually. Oh. And as oh, we know, yeah, airplanes have the best <laughs> earbuds. Fucking uh, prototypical that, Andy behavior. You you're lucky. Yeah, you're lucky if they give them to you. You're lucky if they work after they give them to you. Yeah. And you're lucky if they survive the flight. Do you keep those blankets they give you? Uh, I, I think I've got, like, I, I think I got a nice one from when I got upgraded to first class. Hell yeah. The real good shit, not those crappy JetBlue ones. Well, I um, it's now 437, and I've been going since five o'clock in the morning when i woke up this morning it was 26 degrees and then when i got to work because we're working by the water it was like with the wind chill it was terrible yeah and i'm one like i'm not complaining right i make a good living very happy but you're out there in the snow today but it was snowing it was flurrying and i'm like i'm kind of a sicko when it comes to the cold i actually kind of enjoy it i like 
the adventure of it. I like when it gets super cold, like it did once last year and I got to break out my insulated coveralls for a day. And I had to like, like slowly burn steel just to keep warm through the evening as it was like negative 20 wind chill. I find that kind of fun, but it's fun. Like for seven, eight hours, but then it you didn't gotta, look like you're having fun when you got here. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. I mean the fun stopped, uh, around 12 31 o'clock. Cause I, then I had to run over here. Hold on. I have to check if the, if the airplane headphones are causing a small buzz. Oh, 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 oh no, it's not that. Oh, it's okay. not that. All right. It's I don't just, know what it is. Just our typical leftist audio. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that'll happen. You'll have that. Um, but yeah, no, I uh, work's going good. I'm hoping to get laid off in the next month, month and a half. So everybody out there, if you pray, if you believe in a God, pray for the layoff gods to bless me come this winter. Because it's all fun and games to get all bundled up. Oh, it's the yeah. first day of freezing weather of the year. But by fucking It's fun for me to wear my... Uh, my high viz sweater and Carhartt jacket, but that's because I'm not going to work. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just no, going to the co-working fair. space. That's totally fair. Yeah, I got nothing to be com- nothing to complain about, and I get uh, I didn't have a notebook on me, so I've got my shop steward's book. That's and nice. I'm going to be taking notes through the course of this podcast. On I'll that. get you a, a notebook for Christmas. Thank you. That's very um, nice. Speaking of Christmas and uh, praying for us and blessing us. If you don't believe in God, then you can hit us up on Patreon and become a patron. We took a little dip this month, which is just fine, but I hope it's not because most of our content was free. Like We want to keep putting out episodes that are not at all paywalled, and that's mostly what we did this month, but we took a dip. You know, If you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash the Antifada. We now have a collections tab. It's the hot new thing mm. in the Patreon world, so you can... Uh, more easily find all of our series, including History is a Weapon with mm. Matt Chrisman, Diving to the Wreckage with C. Derek Varn, Talking Tina, Prolet Cult, Armed Love. All that stuff is now on the collections page. Hell yeah. It's fucking dope. Listen, if you don't believe in God anymore, if you're a new atheist, I guess everything old is new again. So there's probably some new atheists out there again. Like it's 2004. New, new atheists. New, new atheists. N-U dash N-E-U-E. Noi atheists um we're not even asking you to tithe unless you make 50 dollars a month we're not asking you to tithe. <laughs> <Yeah>. just five bucks uh would be really appreciated so we can continue this project into year five and if you're really feeling the holiday spirit you can donate for the entire year for a 18 percent discount i think uh so that'll be like i don't know 50 bucks for the whole year and then that's great for us that'll be a nice little christmas bonus if you can do that and that said let's move on to the politics. To so the politics, the politics, the politics. The what politics. do you want to talk about first? A lot, lots of news in the political world, in yeah. the Beltway. <laughs> lots of news in the Beltway. Let's, uh, let's start, you know, you got to start with the low-hanging fruit, which is to say the stuff that, like, Chapo or whoever probably does better than us, but it's good for us to address because it gets the, the, the kids to the yard. So let's talk about what you suggested, which is Elon Musk and anti-Semitism. Because uh, it's been a wild ride. Ooh, it's not even December yet. We're going to talk about anti-Semitism. No, That's usually the month where we talk about anti-Semitism. It's the most anti-Semitic month. Well, we'll, we'll give you a double dose of anti-Semitism this month. And the first dose is that I think I'm actually pretty glad that Elon Musk has elevated him to this point of like um, running his mouth as much as he wants and then also intervening in uh, international affairs as much yeah. as he is because... He is really helping making things like Israel-Palestine and Ukraine-Russia, as well as like 
international, you know, uh, supply chains and economics, like a lot clearer, mm. um, by, you know, just expressing like what his views are and how his views overlap with the international situation. Mm. Um, and he just got his, his, uh, his hands in everything and he just sucks so much. And so I think yeah. he's really doing a sort of a service, uh, politically because politics to me is not what party you vote for or like what you think or what your theories are or whatever. It's what side you're on. Mm. Politics is about picking sides. It's also about creation and self-creation, I think, and, uh, universality and solidarity. And I think that over the last few years or so, Elon Musk has developed a solidarity with quite possibly the stupidest and most pernicious people in the entire world, which is how he got into a anti-Semitism row, I think, last week when he basically signed off on, I saw the tweet, signed off on great replacement theory. Yeah, white genocide. White genocide. Demographics is destiny. And the worst kind, which is like, instead of just saying the elite, you know, he said the Jews were doing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, usually with the elite, the triple parentheses on it is just implied when they say they... Um, but in this case, like he straight out said it, it was uh, pretty impressive only to then have a, uh, a guest visit to Israel like a week later. I tell you, man. And it, uh, I think like people are tempted to read that as like, uh, you know, if someone says anti something anti-Semitic like Mel Gibson, then they meet with a uh, rabbi Shmuley Botok or, mm -hmm. or whatever. And that's like them saving face. But in this situation, I think what he said that was anti-Semitic is completely consistent with Israeli politics, mm. which also sees people like George Soros as a shadowy, Kabbalistic banker figure who is manipulating world economies and politics and culture um, in this specific instance by encouraging third world immigration into the first world and uh, thus replacing white people with uh, people of color under the pretense that they will weaken white people mm. and um, supplant uh, like European culture with uh disgusting third world culture right, i mean right. that's camp of the saint shit yes exactly and uh i and so that that's totally consistent with with israel um the the concept of demographics as destiny which i think he just tweeted that straight out i don't know i don't even know if he like endorsed one of those tweets but he he agrees with that that is a lot of what we've seen coming out from israel in the you know for a a long time but like they're they're just very explicit about it now um both in terms of their insistence on uh making sure that jews have the strongest majority possible uh within israel by making sure occupied people have no civil rights have no chance to vote um have no uh, like that it can't even be considered that palestinian people can have any say in it in how they are governed by the occupying force um and that's, you know, probably the, uh, uh, that's probably like the nicest way that they can frame it. Uh, realistically, what they're doing is expelling them. Um, the, uh, the campaign in Gaza now has created more refugees, internal refugees to the Gaza Strip uh, than the Nakba. It's killed more people than the Nakba. Um, and I'm sure they're not done yet. Uh, so just their, their kind of softer policies of like starving out Gazan people, harassing people in the West Bank, making their lives as miserable as possible, um, trying to encourage them to leave, trying to encourage other countries to, to take them in 
uh, trying to force them into Sinai. And besides that, just murdering as many of them as possible and making it hard for them to continue living. Importantly, destroying um, civilian infrastructure. And I'm not just talking about, I think it came out in the paper today, that two thirds of mosques uh, in, uh, the, in the Gaza Strip have been destroyed at this point in time. So there is obviously a wellspring of communal life in Gaza that's now obliterated. Right, and hospitals and, and hospitals bakeries. And bakeries and, and apartment buildings. Even just as much of a normal seaside as they could possibly have, a lot of that's been obliterated yeah. in Gaza City. Um, so just, you know, trying to make Gaza even more unlivable than it already was as a way of just punishing them, trying to reduce their birth rate, trying to reduce their population. Mm-hmm. That's demographics is, is destiny. That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there, there's another aspect to this, which is something that we'll talk more about in the bonus because we've got a lot of questions from our Discord that we want to answer. Mm-hmm. A major part of how Palestinian people have become such a surplus population is uh, the first intifada was a mass strike, was, a, was begun by Palestinian labor, which was more integrated and more integrating into the Israeli economy um, in the late 70s and 80s. And uh, since then, Israel's done everything it can to make uh, Palestinian labor more and more superfluous by bringing in more and more guest workers from uh, Thailand and other countries. So that's why a lot of the hostages that are being released now were Thai. Yeah, yeah. Because they were Israeli workers who are not allowed to stay there and not you know not given civil rights so look every great civilization right every great peoples every great nation in the imperial core gets its own subject population that it gets to bring in people with far less civil rights often without voting rights certainly without labor rights in the united states it's people from central america people from south america mexico uh, in France, it's people from Algeria and Morocco. In England, it's Eastern Europeans and people from South Asia. In Saudi Arabia and the um, the Gulf states, as we know, it's people from uh, Pakistan, people from Indonesia. And it happens that in Israeli civilization, their subject captive migrant labor population used to be the Palestinians and for the reasons you just said, no longer are. So they get to have Thai people which presumably, you know, in this wonderful globalized world means there's probably some really great Thai food in Israel. I haven't <laughs> been to check, but I'm presuming that's the case. But yeah, every, every, you know, this is part of being the core is to pull in various different um, subjugated migrant labor populations. And, you know, the story of the occupation really tracks the story of global capitalism in, in the post-war period. Um, you had in the initial period uh, from the 40s into the 50s and into the 60s up until the wars of 67 and 73, um, a sort of neo-colonial policy towards the occupied territories on the part of Israel. Uh, Palestinians were often um, invited to come and work. There weren't the great borders and barriers that there obviously are today, of course, at like lower wages than Israeli uh, workers. But at the same time, Uh, policies were put in place to ensure that there were no industries that might compete with Israeli industries. So it's like a subsidiary sort of satellite economy, satellite labor force of Israel. Then as the 60s and 70s came, this whole policy of trying to kind of slowly bring a modicum of economic development to Palestine goes out the window. And you start to see with uh, the neoliberal turn in Israel in the 70s and 80s, an increasing and increasing... um, series of tariffs and barriers put up uh, while Palestinian labor becomes more and more important. 
in the neoliberal period and the austerity period, you also have the brutality of the um, the occupation, uh, the rise in settler violence, uh, lead to a period where, as you said, civil society, Palestinian civil society, begins to react when the second intifada comes and. Uh, labor strikes are part of this and the border walls go up, you now have this vital asset for Palestinian workers, which is to act as this internal slash external, highly exploited, subjugated uh, labor population, um, slowly and slowly taken away. To the point now where I think it's 200,000 Palestinians out of a population of several million in the West Bank are allowed to even work in Israel. And so the political economy of the occupation is really about the political economy of the 20th century as it pertains to the sort of neo-colonial or you could say settler enterprise of Israeli vis-a-vis this subject population. And yeah, so most of the the non-Israeli um, citizen Palestinian labor comes from the West Bank, but up until October 7th, um, some of it was coming from Gaza as well. There were work uh, permits for people from Gaza to go into Israel and work. That was canceled on October 7th. Um, and it's it's caused a deepening labor crisis in Israel. And so I'll, I was going to say it for the bonus, but I'll just get into this question now. It's from uh, Magitecker, who asks, who's going to pick up the garbage, pick the produce, etc., after Israel purges the Palestinians? And then uh, Voodoo Shark uh, adds to that. Um, not the most delicate way of putting it, but we did see a less violent example of this in Florida when DeSantis scared away all the immigrants and construction jobs basically ground to a screeching halt and even deliveries into the state suffered for lack of drivers willing to risk it. England also slowly realizing how badly they shot themselves in the foot with Brexit. Xenophobia is almost as damaging to the hater than the hated, but some people are so committed to the hate, they'll gladly take a punch if a brown person takes two. So it's pretty well put. And it's an interesting question because like, if we're going to be, you know, if we want to try to be vulgar economists about everything, it's like, well, why would you try to uh, genocide a force that could be a willing labor force. Mm-hmm. And so obviously uh, it seems like there's something going on that's more about racism, more about demographics as destiny kind of thinking. But a big part of that is also like, you don't want to be dependent on this repressed group mm-hmm. because they're going to go on strike. Right. They, they can, they can strangle your economy. So it still is very economistic. And it's also impossible. It became impossible in the two thousands to differentiate between a suicide bomber and a wage worker. Mm hmm. Uh, this was the time of like great terroristic violence on the part of the resistance. And so ultimately what ends up happening is, I mean, maybe it displays what the sort of petty bourgeois leadership was in the 2000s and the teens, um, what their interests were. It wasn't for Palestinian working class to be integrated into the economy, you know, have a better livelihood and a better life despite the occupation. It was instead this nationalism that ends up um, disintegrating uh, Israeli capital and Palestinian labor, and therefore taking away that lever that Palestinian workers once had. Uh, and on top of that, now since October 7th, a lot of those Thai workers who, um, I mean, it's an interesting question if there are like Thai restaurants from the Thai workers. I imagine that there's not because they're not really allowed to the freedom, as far as I understand, to like start businesses. So even no, like yeah. the the liberal vision of like taco trucks on every corner <laughs> right. being like a salvo for keeping a permanent Latin American underclass is might not be the case there. Maybe it is, but I found this article um, that came out yesterday from CNN. It's actually a very good article. Hmm. So kudos to CNN. Let me uh, give kudos to the writer on this actually as well. Joseph Adaman, Nick Robertson, and Kocha Olarn. Um, Israel's farms need foreign laborers. The Hamas attacks triggered an exodus. 
So the headline there is still like, oh, it's Hamas's fault. Right. Um, but I'll, I'll read some of this article. Among the more than 1,200 victims of the Hamas attacks, Thais make up the largest group of foreign nationals. Most were workers on agricultural sites close to the perimeter fence that separates Israel from Gaza. Hamas freed a group of 10 Thais taken hostage Friday, but others remain captive. The violence has set off an exodus of foreign workers from Israel, with some 10,000 farm workers estimated to have left since October 7th. For Israel's dairy and agricultural farms, that has posed an almost existential problem. Dairy cows need milking several times a day by specially trained staff. With the past weeks, there's the harvest window uh, for many crops. Without hands to work on the farms, crops and animals would have been left to die. Volunteers from across Israel have stepped up to prop them up, but much-needed foreign workers are still yet to return, and farmers fear that without guarantees of security, the future of Israeli farming near Gaza is impossible. Israeli farms largely relied on Palestinian workers up until the 1990s, but following the wave of violence during the first intifada, uh, the ensuing attack, uh, Israeli crackdown on the freedom of Palestinians to work outside the occupied territories, Israel, Israel started looking elsewhere for farm labor. Today, many farm workers come from poor areas in Thailand's northeast, providing a cheap labor force for Israel. Strict conditions govern their work in Israel, keeping them on short contracts and manual work with no right uh, to raise families there. The farms around Gaza employed about 6,000 Thai workers before the war began, according to Israel's Ministry of the Interior. The Israeli Ministry of Agriculture told CNN as many as 30,000 and 40,000 workers are now missing from the country's Mm. farms, half of whom are Palestinians barred from entering Israel. Um, with no sign of a mass return of Thai workers, the Israeli government is looking to recruit some 5,000 workers from other countries, including Sri Lanka. And I saw Malawi also posted a statement that they're going to start sending workers. So there's no shortage of like workers that can be brought in. Sure. Um, but the difference between that and like the Soros boogeyman is that they will be, you know, they're temporarily, they will, their movement will be restricted. Their their lifestyle will be restricted. Yeah. And so this is, I mean, this is the bullshit of this right populist or fat right, like, you know, this, this fascist response um, that is in- increasingly popular in Europe with uh, uh, fascists winning in Italy, Gert Wilders winning mm-hmm. in Amsterdam, you know, the entire Brexit regime has been along these lines. Uh, and also in the United States, uh, the, the policies of every president since uh, Bill Clinton, at least, has been to ensure that there is this mass supply of immigrant labor to milk cows and work on farms and to do care work and all this stuff. Uh, but that they have to be as immiserated as possible, as precarious as possible. They can be sent back. So they, to the extent that they can stay, they have to stay in line. Um, so that is, that is what like people like Musk talk about when they talk about the great replacement is the, yeah. the potential for the working class of these countries, the people that make these countries work that keep uh, commodity prices low that mm-hmm. keep uh, uh, capital uh, uh, profit rates high. The, that those people um, are permanently subjugated into intense poverty and intense labor exploitation. Yeah, um, that was another um, you know news topic that I, that I wanted to bring up, which was this um, these two recent elections. You had um, what's his name, Javier uh, Meli Malai Malai uh, in Argentina. And then you had, as you said, Gert Wilders, an old villain, a villain that some of you people who have been uh, into politics for, God, 20 years or so probably remember when he first came up. People might remember in 2015 when he, well, he spoke at an event called Twinks for Trump, 
uh, outside the oh, RNC. He was, he was there. There's a great picture you can see of him. Him and Jamie. Yeah, I think they were together with Alex Jones, too. Uh, no, no, she didn't take a picture with him. Okay. Imagine what <laughs> what, what Geert Wilders and, um, and fucking um, what's-his-face would have to say to one another. Um, yeah, so you have this, uh, this continuing upsurge of a sort of right populism. Uh, we've been tracking this for a long time. Everybody knows that the tide is turning towards some sort of uh, what or- Viktor Orban in Hungary called a illiberal democracy, right? Um, the question is, and Varn and I have been playing around with this, and you and I have been talking about this for a while, to what extent these people really can break with the paradigm of, we can call it broadly neoliberalism, uh, we can call it like the global or the rules-based international order, we could call it um, like the developmental capitalist regime of the last 40 or 50 years, you could talk about it as the American empire, right? How, in what ways will these people be able to break from, say, EU strictures? We've seen Orban do that with, um, with migrant policy. We've done him, seen him do that with um, the legal system in Hungary. You've seen similar things in Poland. But it seems like the radical intentions of these people, uh, which is to expel these surplus population or these subjugated populations we were talking about, seem to get stymied at every turn. And as soon as these demagogues uh, reach power, which uh, in Argentina we just saw, all of a sudden these crazy schemes like the dollarization of the Argentine economy, uh, the destruction of their central bank, uh, massive changes to the tax code, all of a sudden they start to moderate. And the question is, is we know that the impulses behind this politics are very real because they're happening globally. Uh, They're rocketing from the United States with Trump to Hungary to Poland all over the place. But the question is like, in what way are these people actually able to confront this global order? Maybe they can nudge it in in one direction or the other. For example, in the European Union, what was the extreme uh, migrant policy of Hungary um, against uh, Syrian refugees, right? It was uh, during the Syrian civil war, uh, blocking them at the border, refusing to take them in, refusing to take asylum seekers, is now starting to become sort of generalized. It's now in uh, Italy under Maloney, and you have uh, Rishi Sunak in Great Britain, I know not part of the EU, but part of Europe, trying to set up some crazy asylum scheme where they send people to Rwanda to live for like five years while they process their shit. I guess like, the rhetoric of these people is really scary and their politics have like serious consequences for millions of people, but it feels as though everyone's waiting and I'm waiting, everyone's waiting for like some sort of like fascist moment to arise where all of a sudden the old paradigm collapses and you have like a Mussolini type figure or a Hitler type figure. And we're not getting that. Instead we're getting this slow sort of like, Um, accretion of illiberal democracy through the world, making things worse for migrants for sure. But it doesn't seem like any of these politicians are able to actually expel them because for the reasons we talked about, they're far too necessary for these economies. This is is what I kind of appreciate about Malay is that he's a total right-wing psycho. He's just like Tucker Carlson. He's got like the pretty much the same politics as all the other ones, but he calls himself a liberal. Mm. And by that, he means like a classical liberal, liberal. a libertarian or whatever. But really these policies are liberal policies. They're the politics of Bill Clinton, Mm. uh, of Obama, Mm -hmm. you know, of George W. Bush. And they just have to turn up in moments when that immigrant labor asserts itself as, as workers. Uh, And this, this gets into like the rise up happened in Dublin. And I I think we we still need some time to um, like hear what our comrades there are saying about what happened in Dublin. Uh, 
to get a, a fuller idea of what exactly went down. But the, the transfer of nationalism, like Irish nationalism in this sense, to like a militant xenophobia where you, you see mobs of youth trying to burn down places where immigrants live and immigrant shops and that kind of thing is part of this liberal policy of trying to make the lives of immigrant workers as precarious and difficult as possible to, to keep them in line, to keep mm. them. It's the, the best that they can do under those circumstances is to like wave the flag and show that they're on the side of the national economy. And yeah. Yeah. And the national bourgeoisie ultimately. Yeah. I mean, the problem that you have in uh, Europe in the, in the, especially, but I guess also in the United States and, and the rest of the developed capitalist world is not a problem you really saw when, say, Germany imported um, tens of thousands of Turkish workers because German labor was getting too expensive, German unionized labor, factories were humming, and they were trying to keep down wages and create a precarious workforce within uh, Germany. You know, there was a relative uh, peaceful and uh, non-political, let's say, uh, entry of Turkish people into the German economy. Uh, same thing with Polish workers in, uh, or Eastern European in general. In Britain, previous to Brexit, previous to the financial crisis, um, there was a sense and there was a reality in which there was not a zero-sum game right, between native workers who were who, quote, were refused to do the jobs that needed to be done, like the mm -hmm. manual and service jobs that uh, they, quote, unquote, didn't want to do anymore, which is to say ones that didn't pay enough or provide conditions well enough or live up to the social expectations of people, right? Um, it's really with the 2008 financial crisis and this 15-year period we've had of very low growth, global GDP, if you take China out of the equation, somewhere between zero and 2%, over the course of 15 years, again, to be vulgar economic determinists about this sets up a scenario where local national labor markets do become a zero-sum game in people's minds. Uh, the welfare state becomes a zero-sum game. The, uh, what, what happens in Ireland with um, the mass influx of, say, Ukrainian refugees from the war um, versus uh, an Irish state that refuses to build public housing. So housing prices and rental prices have been going up for Irish people. You know, there are like deep structural reasons for why these things are popping off now, why they're expressing themselves in the riot form, uh, nationalist riots, why they're expressing themselves in these kind of, you could say, neo-fascist reactionary uh, demagogic right-wing figures. This is all very, very structural. And the question is, without a socialist movement, without an internationalist movement, uh, how could we imagine this knife of this uh, this sword of uh, the right wing demagogue, demagogue being um, being turned into a plowshare, you know, or, or dulled at least? Anyways, it's really difficult to imagine that. And since the organized working class has has fled the field or been defeated over the last thirty or forty years, all that's left now are this back and forth between an increasingly demagogic and uh, violent and craven uh, nationalist right-wing um, politics on the one hand, and then, of course, like the liberal, globalist, whatever you want to call it, um, sort of holdover from, from neoliberalism politics, the vital center, which is trying to hold on as it's being buffeted by these forces. So, so, so obviously, socialism in, in the form of social democracy has, has left this gap in like the more culture war aspect of these questions because... When the socialists come to power in, in Germany, for instance, now has a social democrat president um, who is 
incredibly unpopular. And you see the same thing throughout Latin America and Northern Europe. Um, their their failure to deal with these problems has has led to these gaps where right populists pro- promising more radical change, especially to a, a petty bourgeois base of, of small farmers, for example, in the Netherlands and in France, uh, is, is uh, sees them as an option for um, guaranteeing a more submissive workforce uh, against, like, for example, EU regulations on like how you're allowed to treat a worker or like how uh, guest workers need to be treated in terms of just like guaranteeing them basic human rights as they're heavily exploited. Um, but then you can look at the uh, Trump's first term as an example of how that fails. Like, I don't think Trump lost because he's such a hater or whatever. I think it's because people saw how erratic he was, especially during COVID, COVID yeah. um, as uh, being incredibly dangerous to people's day-to-day lives. And so I think the the right populists will also fail. Um, but I think on the horizon, we see them becoming more and more revolutionary, more and more properly fascist. Because mm. um, fascism, properly speaking, it's it's not, uh, you can't just say it's it's simply xenophobia or simply anti-Semitism or something like that. It's classically, it tries to re- revolutionize society to some extent. And so I think that's where the, the plan 2025 stuff comes oh, in. Oh, yeah. The, I, would, I would say of the characters we've spoken about, uh, all of these dutifully democratically elected people, Jair Bolsonaro uh, presumed to try to have some sort of revolutionizing effect upon society. He tried to bring in the military for a coup, which the military has good liberals refuse to do, right? They wouldn't actually institute another military dictatorship. Uh, the Malay um, administration, or at least his rhetoric in his campaign, comes closer to the sort of like revolutionizing, palingetic nationalism that we saw in the 1920s and the 1930s in Europe. Um, but at the service of what, though? It's not about like rebuilding the people and, you know, uh, getting what Laban's realm from like Bolivia and Peru or whatever. It was more about a sort of radical Milton Friedmanite attempt to get rid of Peronism and the administrative state such as it exists, which brings us to, as you said, Trump and uh, plan 2025. Millay has said that has, has been saber rattling about the Falklands though, which the Peronists do as well. That's just like normal Argentinian politics. But that was the origin of the Falklands war was the, the dying fascist dictatorship in Argentina in the eighties decided to go for it. They and needed a dub, dude. In uh, invade the Malvinas and then their loss was the was the like sort of the official end of that dictatorship. They did anti imperialism. So maybe Malai will try that too. Yeah, maybe he'll become an anti imperialist. It was really funny because there were a lot of like uh dissident right commentators in the UK who were all for you know, him with the chainsaw talking about, you know, destroying the liberal elite in Argentina. And then the first thing he does when he gets elected is, well, first he backtracks on a lot of his more wild proposals. But then the second thing is he's like, and we're taking the Falklands back. And then all these fucking limey twats are like, oh, no, no, not like that. <laughs> well, I think this is maybe what will happen is is uh, labor will sweep back into power in the next elections. And then Malay will say, oh, the UK has gone socialist. Right. Now, now, now we we're going right to protect. Invade. Yeah, we're going to save the Falklands from communism the sheep farmers and it'll be hilarious to hear Keir Stormer (laughs) try to moderate a response to that yeah this is the uh, the famously the human rights lawyer who thinks that a ceasefire uh, in Gaza when uh, tens of thousands of people have been killed is actually uh, immoral so yeah Trump plan 2025 I sent you this um, 
Uh, I'm not sure if you had a chance to read it, but this op-ed that I saw in the uh, New York Times, uh, how Trump has a plan to eliminate uh, the deep state. This is an article from uh, Daniel, da- Donald P. Moynihan, which le- makes me wonder, since this guy's a professor uh, at Georgetown and has Moynihan as his last name, if he's related to our late great senator, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, he might just be. It's possible. One of the progenitors of what we call neoliberalism. Of of our beloved Moynihan train hall with this beautiful Art Deco uh, clock. I was just there the other day. And while I know a lot of people who made a lot of fucking money off that rehab project, and while the idea is pretty decent, I think it looks chintzy as hell. It looks kind of tacky in there. Yeah, it is a little bit like, I don't know, I don't want to say fascist, but it's a little bit like return, like, uh, but for train people. Like what? What are the train people gonna like? Yeah, they're 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 trying to get the well. There's your problem demographic, right. but not doing it well enough. Um, I am of that demographic, and it didn't work on me. So this is from a uh, professor of public policy and an expert on the administrative state. Talk about a cursed profession. Talk about like the fucking bottom of the barrel when it comes to academics. This person, um, this professor, has this whole art- article about Project 2025 and the way in which uh, Trump. And his people, let's say, because I don't know how much of this comes directly from Trump, but uh, his people anyway, have crafted a plan to not make the same mistake that they made last time, which was allowing the deep state, right, which and in their telling, it seems like a great conspiracy. And in many cases, it is because it's tied into this Soros World Economic Forum, uh, CIA, FBI are out to get Republicans sort of conspiracy theory thing. But it's also true to the extent that there is a hundreds of thousands of persons administrative state uh, that exists in this country and has existed for 100 years or so, uh, which basically is allowed by Congress to set various standards and regulations and rules. Uh, they, the conservatives have been arguing for a long time that that actually usurps Congress. There is a Supreme Court case coming up where actually it might strike down the ability of uh, the various different agencies to do a lot of the policy setting. But it was um, resistance. You know, there was not just the resistance on the street to the Trump fascist regime that we saw. The greater resistance, I think, was from, of course, within that administrative state itself, uh, fighting against what they would call the politicization of their technocratic expert affairs that they, you know, sit and work in an office in D.C. for 30 or 40 years, become experts on Israel-Palestine, and then they get trotted out every once in a while to justify ethnic cleansing. Same thing with the EPA. There's plenty of people in there. Uh, The Justice Department... These became, of course, a target for Trump because he faced such resistance. So the point is, if and when Trump is elected again, him and the Heritage Foundation and all of these ghouls have a plan, which is not to make the same mistake. They're going to cut this hydra off. They're going to eliminate the deep state. And yeah, before we get into it, uh, this this was another listener question um, that we can use to frame this discussion. It's from Selim Pride. I don't know what Selim means. I hope that's not some ethnic group and they have Uh. Selim pride. (laughs) Uh, Or solemn pride, perhaps. uh, Can anyone explain to me how much stock I should take in this fear-mongering of Project 2025? I'm not saying I want Trump for another term, but why am I hearing tankies now screaming that I have to vote for Biden? Have they lost their minds or something? Don't get me wrong. I do vote. I vote in my union. I vote in local elections. I also vote on my nephew's school board as I am his legal guardian. But why the F... Thank you for saying F, even though you're on the Discord. You're allowed to curse. <laughs> yes, you are. Uh, why the F should I care about electoral politics? Well, you're not going to get a great rebuttal from 
about that from us. I mean, we've been famously anti-electoral uh, since the very fucking beginning. Yeah, but we're not like necessarily anti-voting. Like, no, not at all. You can vote or not. It's not a big deal, the, especially depending on where you are. We're not like, uh, you know, we're not anarchists who are like, yeah. want to campaign against voting or something like that. Or it's, we're not the people who are online whose entire Gaza thing, it feels like, is, um, you know, in the midst of these atrocities, is to be like, and this is why I'm not voting for right. Joe Biden. You lost my vote, sir. Sir, this was what it took to lose my vote. You know, like, to the extent that that even fucking matters in a country of 350 million people, a lot of it's very performative. And It appears to matter a little bit to Biden, so as, like, a tactic in bringing him over to a more humane position, maybe it has some effects. But what I would say to this this question is that if the election's Biden versus Trump, do I want Biden to win? Yes. Am I very worried about Trump's rhetoric and product 2025? Yes. But in the long run, the more people like Biden get elected or the more the more these really lame social Democrats get elected or even like more base social Democrats in like the in, in Latin America, the, when these people get elected, they, they fail. And the result of that failure is the is more radical solutions are sought and the more radical right uh, wing of those solutions is what's empowered. And so the reaction to Biden is will probably drive more people to think, um, well, this plan 2025 thing of him of I'm like emptying out the deep state and uh, filling it up with their apparatchiks who can like more feasibly do their policies because last time they were stopped by the deep state and the global elite or whatever becomes more attractive to people. And that's why Malay won in Argentina. It's not like Argentina has gone fascist or something. Right. It's just that people are losing half their money every year due yeah. to inflation. Yeah. And uh, they, they don't necessarily like him, but they're sick and tired of Peronism. And so they wanted to make a break. And it's the only reasonably reasonable solution, quote unquote, reasonable solution or like viable solution, let's just say, being proposed across the globe are these right wing demagogues. Right. There isn't like a uh, party in Argentina or let's say an international party who could propose socializing or communizing or like rebuilding civil society on socialist terms. Or yeah, you whatever. don't get that from voting or elections, no <clears throat> matter. Yeah. No matter who, how left the candidate. This right. is not how it works. So when you so when we play let's say this game here where uh, we want to favor one of the capitalist parties against the other when we spend our time being a pressure group or and like a um, a propaganda outfit against uh, one particular party uh, disregarding the other party and whatever we end up uh, in a situation continuous situation we've been in for a hundred years which is that when we consider ourselves the left wing of that we become tarnished with and we become associated with in everybody's mind these fucking losers, these fucking Democrats, yeah. Biden and company, yeah. right? So not only do all of a sudden now we're just considered super Democrats, like Democrats <laughs> yeah. who want the things that Biden wants, like, all right, well, he did the uh, Inflation Reduction Act to do all this green energy shit. We want a Green New Deal, one up him, right? We become the left wing of what's possible <clears throat> it's impossible within the Democratic Party. So when they fail, of course, we own that shit. But what it also does, too, is it shrinks and truncates our own horizon of what we imagine politics to be mm -hmm. and the kind of world that we want to see, while at the same time truncating our activity that we could be doing 
that's not posting, that's not not voting for Biden, that's not being performative with our activism, right? It's truncating the, our own activity that could lead to the possibilities that might offer, say, like an independent, autonomous, working class, self-activity, party, um, militant industrial union movement that's the only thing that could actually break this fucking two-party system which is already teetering and totting and is only going to end up going more and more fascist every fucking year. So, like... I don't know. Do we want to play the word games? Do we want to play the fucking performative politics? Do we want to get on there and point out every time that Joe Biden has given carte blanche to Israel? Well, guess what? Everybody called for the ceasefire, which they should have. There were marches in the streets. There were tens, hundreds of thousands of people marching all over the United States, as there should be. When Biden, and if you read the accounts of it behind the scenes, when Biden gets the ceasefire against the interests of the right wing of uh, Israel, Netanyahu and his coalition, Biden essentially negotiated this ceasefire against the interests of the I think Qatar Israelis. and Egypt might have had a bigger hand to play, sure, but he had, yeah, Biden had a hand in it as politics, well. It's politics, right? From the very beginning... Right. It's not it wasn't some bloodthirsty shit. Blinken wasn't dripping red with tooth and claw going through the Middle East and calling for the genocide and killing of the Palestinian people. The United States government, the Democratic Party and the, the Biden administration was trying from the very outset to manage this crisis in such a way that it could continue to be a frozen conflict, that it didn't look so bad for the U.S. and for Israel to just obliterate entire neighborhoods. Maybe you should only obliterate like half a neighborhood today. You know, and eventually the ceasefire came through and now it's been extended. So like, what are the politics now that everybody marched and they like called for Biden to do this and he lost the Palestinian vote in Michigan? I don't know. What do you do now? There is a ceasefire. You got what you want. Well, it's it's to uh, challenge the validity of the ceasefire and to extend it and to um, make sure that this there is some sort of lasting change from it. So it's not, it's not like stop protesting. It's not like the protests have stopped. Um, but getting back to 2025 and we'll, we'll work our way back to Israel, uh, the plan 2025 thing, firing mass amounts of, of, uh, government employees, replacing yeah. them with Trump loyalists. And basically it's, you got to give credit to Bannon here. This is like his vision from day one mm. is his whole like Leninist. I'm trying to like smash the state sort of thing. And, their kind of revolutionary vision, uh, a, a reinvigorated nationalism built around the petty bourgeoisie or small capital as opposed to elite capital, as they call it, um, will be rebuilt and re-empowered within the United States in cooperation with these far-right leaders internationally. So obviously that's very attractive to, I don't know if it's the majority of Americans, but prob- probably for sure the majority of American voters mm. who consider themselves middle class or consider themselves small business owners or at least like supportive of small business. The reason why it has always seemed like the that Bannonite vision can't go to its full revolutionary extent is because uh, American politics, like politics almost everywhere, are con- entirely controlled by the bourgeoisie. Mm. And all of these so-called Republican popul- populists are the bourgeoisie. So they own like dairy farms, for example, or, you know, they own businesses and they hire migrant labor and they understand how important migrant labor is the economy. So the idea of like actually shutting down the border like Trump tried to do at one point is completely ridiculous. It would like greatly damage the U.S. economy. Now, I do think uh, that is changing and Musk is a big part of how it's changing. Mm -hmm. Um, Not Musk himself, but his cohort cohort of the of these silicon valley people with their dreams of like a more 
you know, neo-reactionary AI fueled, like empower the, you know, make the, the president of Google, the leader of the world or right. something the like there is program. a, there is a, uh, a growing faction of the bourgeoisie who sees a sort of techno utopia on the other side of this. Um, you know, which is basically the great reset, but like they've got their own sort of like cultural veneer yeah, on it. Right. Right. Uh, but it's for freedom, but it's becoming, that stuff is becoming more plausible to the, you know, the people who really make the decisions in terms of state power. Um, because now there is a, uh, a bourgeois base for it. And so that's why I think like if Trump is elected, some of this stuff can happen mm-hmm. and no one knows, including them, how well it will work or to what level it'll succeed. Uh, but we know for sure that like the current, you know, the Biden's plan of just managing the, the, the decline of like uh, global economy and like, uh, and just the life of the vast majority of people on the planet can only go on for so long before mm-hmm. there's a major crisis. And I think uh, one of the countries is becoming pretty clear that has succeeded the most in this kind of, um, fascistic restructuring is israel um and the genocidal nature of of their operations now reflect that kind of revolutionary zeal of of the israeli right where they just don't give a shit about how they're seen internationally or like how much blood is on their hands they want to get rid of these people and rebuild their economy um out of like the new land that they've seized they want to make the desert bloom even more and uh, I think more important than that is this palingenetic idea of rebuilding the third temple. You know, when I went to Israel, um, I was one of the most disturbing things I saw at that time. And this was like on the managed trip where they're trying not to show you disturbing things is this menorah that they built that's outside the Western wall. And they just tell you straight up like, oh, this is uh, based on the menorah that was in the second temple. And when we rebuild the third temple, it'll go in. I mean, that's, that is a totally fascistic concept yeah. of like, you know, what kind of apocalyptic, literally apocalyptic war has to happen before that, that can happen. And I think that is the, the fascist vision of like uh, this international national rebirth in each country. Um, you can call it, uh, you know, MAGA in the United States and like the various MAGAs elsewhere, where there is this moment when there is a nationalist revolution and um, the national character has been reborn. And obviously we know where that goes. That leads to uh, war between those nationalist power right, blocks. Right, right. And like uh, it's a, it's a total death drive. And like, even if you were able to totally cleanse uh, a population and totally have like one nation, one people in power in that fascist imaginary, then you just have to continue purging and excluding more and more people. Right. Uh, if not go to war with your neighbors. So right. um, that will be obviously total barbarism and total disaster. That's where the right wing ideas lead. But, uh, you know, without a, an international proletarian revolutionary response to it, that's where we're headed. Well, look, you brought up uh, the barbarism term. You know, I'm one of the people that believes when the socialism or barbarism question was posed right before the first world war that, uh, we were defeated and the ruling class chose barbarism, which is a state of affairs we've lived in for the last uh, century or so. Right. Um, politics, uh, bourgeois politics, state politics, uh, left and right, um, within the spectrum of what's possible, uh, in politics in the, in the last few decades or so is about setting the conditions, uh, and reproducing the conditions for the reproduction, reproduction of capital and capital accumulation, 
Uh, that includes within, let's say, the U.S. administrative state, not just ensuring that ExxonMobil can pump oil out of Venezuela or Nigeria, right, the big, big capital, the extractive capital, but of course, too, for decades and decades, we've had the Small Business uh, Administration in the United States, which is its explicit goal is to ensure that petty capital, that uh, petty bourgeois um, people in the United States are able to produce and reproduce themselves, Um the management of the barbarism is the administrative state, right? There is like this holdover from the popular front that we all still kind of live in, live and breathe. And the, the reaction of people to Biden's policies um, is reflective of this, right? Um, the reality is that what is the administrative state but the management of barbarism? which is to say the management of the working class, which is to say the administration of exploitation, the administration of politics, uh, the elimination of politics from the sphere of politics, uh, at least a politics that offers anything different uh, besides this slow decline of empire, various different capitalist crises, and the barbarism of the subjugation of all of us to the fucking wheel of global capital day in and day out, not just um, people in Nigeria, not just people in Venezuela, but of course, us here in the imperial mm -hmm. core as well. So when Trump comes with plan 2025, you think to yourself that you should think to yourself, this is again, a period very similar to the 1970s that we're in right now. When the ruling class of that time, not just the, the haute bourgeoisie, of course, but various different politicians tried various different ad hoc measures, pulled some ideologies off the shelf uh, attempted various interest rates to try to figure out a way out of this long-term crisis of capital accumulation we saw in the 1970s. The same thing has been happening for the last 15 years. Every time one of these right-wing populist demagogic figures pops up, this is an, another attempt on the part at the end of the day of the ruling class to figure a way out of this mess, which will not be socialism, which will be barbarism. Mm -hmm. We can't, at the end of the day, claim to want to have some sort of independent politics, uh, believe in the self-activity uh, and the subjectivity and the agency of the working class um, as a subject, a revolutionary subject within history, at least the possibility of that, while defending the same administrative state that administers that barbarity. Right. So Trump is going to try what Trump tries. He tried it before and... He'll probably be president again around this time next year, and he'll try it again. This is, again, the working out of politics, of a, of a haute bourgeois politics, mm -hmm. trying to get out of this crisis. We have to stand aside in this particular battle, and I feel strongly about this, right? We have to stand aside and not say that defense of the administrative state is our battle, because it is absolutely not our battle. What our battle is, I think, nowadays, and I've been thinking a lot about this, is in a world where in the 19th century, um, if you read Alex de Tocqueville, right, one of the things that was wonderful about America, about the bourgeois society that was America and soon to be the capitalist society of America, is that people were constantly forming associations, assemblies, civic um, associations, various different community centers and churches and all sorts of uh, like this efflorescent life within bourgeois society of association among people, a civil society. Civil society. Right? What has happened in the preceding 170, 180 years or so, right, 
is that more and more that opening that the bourgeoisie allowed when it shackled the state, um, when it allowed the state to be shackled in the benefit of civil society, uh, has more and more and more been denuded to the point now where all that's left of society is capital. It's consumerism, it's capital, fully mediated media environments, fully mediated communities. Your neighbors are only your neighbors because you both fit into a similar income bracket and you can afford to buy houses or rent houses, rent an apartment in a particular area, right? Everything that was a society about bourgeois society is gone. Mm. Who is going to pick up the slack? Who is going to make the dream of having a, um, an autonomous base for human activity outside of the state, but also outside of capital, who is going to take up that mantle and try to push it forward? It doesn't seem like anybody else is at this point in time. The bourgeoisie has exited the stage of history in terms of having a coherent plan for moving things forward. The petty bourgeoisie in its nationalist furor is fighting amongst themselves and fighting the people below them in order to hold on to one last gasp of petty bourgeois freedom as consolidation and crisis continues to destroy more and more clerks and fucking shopkeepers, right? This is a last gasp of them. Who is going to rebuild society? Who can take us out of barbarism, this managed barbarism we've been living in? It's only us. And we can't use the master's tools of the electoral system to try to get ourselves out of barbarism because we've seen where that leads us into a popular front with the left wing of capital. All that we can try to do is to rejuvenate and rebuild within civil society the sort of powerful institutions that we had in the past because we're the only people that can do it as the vast majority of people and we're the only people who have a coherent enough plan to get humanity out of the barbarism that we've seen over the last hundred years and we'll continue to dive and dip into as crisis and ecological collapse continues. So tying yourself to a 150-year-old project of one wing of the bourgeoisie and trying to create an administrative state that like soothes the worst excesses of the capitalist economy, complete waste of time in my mind. I'm not saying that we should celebrate what Trump is doing, but like it's just going in this direction and we got to fight somewhere else. So, Sean, are you saying, as Marx said in Thesis 10 on his thesis on Feuerbach, that the standpoint of the old materialism is civil society and the standpoint of the new is human society or social humanity? That's exactly what I'm saying. Thank All right. you for that. Let's go to the bonus and yeah. we'll talk more about what that means. And we'll take another couple listener questions. Patreon.com slash the Antifada. We'll see you on the other Merry side. Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Oh,